Hello and welcome to Growing Trends. This is your host Chris Coop with Ann Miller. Today we are interviewing Bill Sosinski, the founder of Energine University. Okay, so Anne, can I introduce you to Bill? Bill, can I introduce you to Anne? Hello, Anne. Very, very nice to make your acquaintance. How hey, are you today? Bill. Same thing. Same, same here. It's, I'm great today. It's a lovely overcast day. Waiting for the lunar yeah. eclipse or the solar eclipse, right? Around yeah, I'm in, I'm, it stopped raining for an hour. That's the best thing I can say about today, but it's actually quite pretty out right now. Now, where are you country, at, so. Bill? I'm in Millbrook, New York, and I'm actually sitting right now in the middle of the uh, uh, the Cary Nature Preserve, which is a 4,000-acre arboretum with a river running through the middle of it with lots and lots of wildlife, and it's just spectacularly beautiful. Even in an overcast rainy day, it's still quite a wow. beautiful place to be. I'm sure. I can just imagine. No. There's still some trees that have leaves on them, but most of the trees at this point have, uh, have given up. <laughs> so it's looking a little bit like winter, but it is still very, very pretty. And it's been raining a lot, so the rivers are high, and uh, it's just it's a nice place to be. Is it normally raining a lot this time of year, or is it? I don't know. I, you know, it, I, I think you get you get a lot of rain in New York this time of year, but this is my first year back in New York uh, in 19 years. I've been living oh. in uh, in Seattle, Washington, or just north of Seattle, since 1995. And uh, we moved back this past summer. Uh, and, and I'm glad to be back. I miss the East very, very much. But uh, I'm going to have to get used to the weather and the changes. It's a little bit more severe here than it is in the West. A lot more moderate weather. It, it, I would have said it was a lot more severe. You would think, but it's not. Actually, Seattle uh, gets very little snowfall. And uh, you very rarely get temperatures that are below freezing. Uh, where I Where I am in the East... You can get months where the temperature doesn't rise above freezing. So uh, it gets warmer here in the summertime, colder in the winter. Uh, there's more precipitation in a shorter period of time in the east. It's drawn out in the west in terms of light rain and mist. Um, they're both beautiful places to live, but the climates are very much different. Yeah, they are very different. So why did you move back to the east? Well, you know, I have um, family here, and, uh, you know, the business that I'm related to, I do a lot more of my networking and a lot more of my meetings uh, on the East Coast between New York and Washington, D.C. So uh, as things were picking up for us and moving forward, it seemed like a logical move in just in terms of my own time so that I'd be able to spend more time with my family and not traveling if I could be situated on the, uh, on the East Coast with my family. Well, Bill, Chris and I really appreciate your um, taking time to speak with us today. Uh, it's intriguing, the little bit of information that I've begun to um, accrue about Energyme University and about yourself and about what you and the, the people that you're involved with are trying to accomplish. Um, Chris, I'm just going to, should we just jump right in today? Sure. Why, why don't we ask Bill a little bit about um, how he got to where he is today? Uh, that's a, that could be a very, very long answer, but in general, uh, I, I guess uh, I started getting involved with the environment and with sustainability back when I was really young, about 13 years old, um, 57, so that was a while ago. And uh, 
I had been made aware. I'd been going to a school in New York City called Littoret Schoolhouse, Elizabeth Irwin, which is a private school in Greenwich Village. And one of our uh, graduates had gone on to MIT to work on the first global modeling uh, platform or computerized program to uh, try to project what the planet would be in the future. And uh, they basically did a study on sustainability. And after they ran all the information through their computers, they came out with some very, very scary projections. They thought, you know, all the computer models showed that we would raise our population to over 9 billion people by mid-century. And then because of a lack of resources, that our population would abruptly drop off anywhere between one and three quarters and two and a half billion people based on what would be available in terms of food, water, uh, and resources to provide for the population. And the uh, not-so-funny thing is is that their projections are, are really quite accurate, and I think even modest considering the, uh, you know, the additional things that we're having to confront, such as uh, climate change, which seems to be happening much more rapidly than was anticipated, the loss of our pollinators. Uh, there are a number of factors they didn't factor into those uh, projections, but they were pretty much right on. And I think that's what we're facing for the future. And that was where my interest started. Wow. And what makes so, you as a young person even get interested in, in I mean, what, draw, what attracted you to it? I mean, that obviously it's a huge issue that as a grown person you would be able to grasp it. As a 13-year-old person, what was you know, it, you remember? That, that's, an, that's, that's also another, could be, I could talk about about 20 hours, but to try to make it as brief as possible. Uh, I always liked science, but I think the area that I was most interested in, or the area at least that I was gifted in as a child, was economics. And I recognized at a very early age, to me it made sense, that in order for us to solve the problems of our, of our not just our climate, but our resource management and uh, the you know, environmental stewardship of our planet, it had to be ingrained in an economic model that supported those aims. And everything that I was seeing from, from the way we were developing the planet, mining the planet, you know, opening up wells for oil, gas exploration, there wasn't enough incentive for people to make those changes because our system wasn't geared towards that. Our system was geared towards competition, and competition ultimately gets to the point where you overutilize your resources, where you have to look for cheaper labor to increase your profitability. Our entire economic model is based around that. So I started at a very, very early age trying to talk to people about the need to integrate uh, these new efficiency changes and these new changes in how we look at uh, managing our resources into actual corporate development and, and, economic, and economic growth. And really for 40 years, people completely ignored me. Only recently are people starting to pay attention and recognizing that we're not going to be able to solve this problem through philanthropy and subsidy alone. And then, in fact, for it to really be solved, it has to be a part of our, of our infrastructure, a part of our culture, a part of the way that we, we use our resources and manage our planet. And, and, and I guess that just came to me at an early age. And then I didn't get involved with it for a while, and I went off and did my own thing and thought someone else would figure that out. And here we are 40 years later, and we really haven't gotten to that solution yet, which is, to me, something that we need to do almost immediately. And uh, I'd like to see it happen, but hasn't happened yet. But I think we're going in that direction, and I think we will get there. But it's going to be a matter of people becoming more aware of what's needed to be done and then actually applying themselves to doing it. So you're looking for cooperative 
efforts worldwide as opposed to competitive efforts. Would that be correct? It, it has to be. It has to be cooperative. The, the problem that we have is based, and, you know, I talk to people about this, and they say, oh, God, you know, I don't want to hear about economics. In the United States, at least, we're not taught economics in school. Kids don't learn that. You know, we're brought up to be consumers. And what we don't realize is that the problems that we're having with the planet right now are not that we are running out of food or water or we don't have enough energy or that energy is getting more expensive or, or you know, we're, we're creating this tremendous amount of pollution that are going to eventually kill our oceans or poison our atmospheres. Our problem is, is that we have a disbalance between how we manage our resources and how we consume. And if we were to increase individual knowledge and individual productivity, such that every human being on the planet was being far more integrated into the process and far more productive than we currently are, we could solve this problem. We could have 20 billion people on the planet. We're not overpopulated on this planet as much as people want to think. We're just overutilizing our resources in a very uh, uh, inefficient and non-productive manner. And it's because of competition. It's because we demand of our corporations that they have increasing profits every three months. And I have a friend of mine who was from MIT who made one of the best statements on that that I, that I had heard, I thought, which was really eloquent. He said the only person who would think that you can have increasing profits in a world with finite resources on a you know, year-by-year basis is either a complete moron or an economist. And, and that's an accurate statement. We now have a world where we are overutilizing our resources. We're utilizing them in a non-sustainable manner. And it's perfectly within our capacity to not only manage them so that we have more than enough, because we throw out in the United States alone, 40% of the food we produce never makes it to the table. So we're just incredibly inefficient and wasteful in the way we manage our resources. But then again, you talk about a global economy and you talk about different countries that are, are using the oceans to provide protein and food for their populations and boats traveling all over the world. And the fact that, you know, most of the foods and goods and services that we get come from all over the planet. And it has to be an integrated process where countries agree. But we've seen from Kyoto Accords, from Copenhagen, from uh, Rio, that trying to get countries to agree as to how that's going to go how that's going to occur is really almost an impossibility. So you start recognizing it can't be a politically solved uh, problem. It has to be one where our population is educated and empowered to start working individually start to so, so they can start to address those issues on a local basis. And that's really the entire basis of Energyme University. It's to provide access to education, training, and ultimately to the uh, technologies and the protocols and the applications that will allow people to reestablish a sustainable balance back to their local environments. And if we can get this going in enough places around the world, then we can start solving our problem and solving the challenges that we have for the future, which are, by the way, very solvable. I, and I think we will solve them. Well, that's what's so fascinating about, the, uh, about nature is that it's a great survivor and that it's endured all of this um, mistreatment that we've put against it, but yet it can recover itself if we cooperate with it. I, I really think you're online there. Okay, so education and empowerment um, on an individual, on a very, you know, grassroots level, how do you see that happening in an individual's life? For example, I'm, I'm just a Midwest um, 
you know, simple person, individual living my little life here in the middle of the United States. Um, and, it, you know, my life is full of abundant food and um, it looks like, uh, you know, the garbage man comes and picks up my stuff every day. It doesn't look like there's a problem. But if I want to start impacting the world on my little grassroots level, what are some things that you see individuals can do in their own lives to start to make a difference? Uh, that's an interesting question. Sustainability has different ramifications and different requirements depending on where you live and what kind of a life you lead. And it's very, very different where we are in the developed world in the United States than someone who's growing up in, say, Tanzania or, or some child in Beijing. Or the, Everybody has the same needs of food, water. They create waste, and they need energy for their homes and their businesses. But how you create that and how you manage that really varies on your infrastructure and where you are in the world. But I would say this, okay? There's a lot of things that we can do in the United States or we can do if we have a little home to, you know, maybe put a, a, a garden in our backyard to maybe start recycling better, to, you know, change our light bulbs to LEDs from, from incandescence or even compact fluorescence. There's a million things that you can do. But the reality of it is, is as a species, as a people, the, the folks of this world, the people of this world, are one common family. We have to think about it that way. And not because we're being wonderfully philanthropic or, you know, this is Oye Como, but we need, to, we need to help everybody. It has nothing to do with that. It has to do that when you sit down at night and you look at your table and you look at the different types of food that are on there, many of those foods and many of the resources that you use come from all over the world. And if we don't educate the rest of the world, if we don't empower and provide not the, I'm not talking about giving them money or shipping food over. I'm talking right. about creating an economic model that allows them to become educated managers of their individual resources that they manage on a local basis globally. Then they're going to extinguish those resources. We'll no longer have them available. And no matter what we have right now, our future is going to be much more austere than what it is that we're looking at. And that's not to say in the United States that we're even doing a good job. I mean, we're doing a terrible job managing our water resources. We're emptying out our aquifers, our water systems in the southwest and California right now are in draft stages and have been for, you know, for decades now. And this is not boding well for our future. So it really becomes incumbent on every single family and every single person who's listening to this show to consider a future where you're going to start raising some of your own food, maybe in your house, maybe in your office building, in your workspace and really being conscious of how you manage your resources. And stop thinking of what you create as waste as being garbage, because there's no such thing as garbage. Garbage is an antiquated concept based on an a old way of looking at things. Waste is only the byproduct of a process that we don't use at that time. And what we really need to get much, much better at is reprocessing our waste and reutilizing it. And those technologies exist right now, but we're not utilizing them properly. And, and that's really our issue, is that everything we need to do to solve this problem is available now. The expertise, the technologies, and certainly the ability to integrate these systems to, to solve these, this much, much greater problem. But we're not using them because people are not concerned. Because you can go to a supermarket and the, and the shelves are filled with every conceivable food that you might want to eat. But I would right. say for all those people, if you had the opportunity, take a trip to Africa. 
go to go to go to some countries in Africa or in some third world countries and see what's available for food. And if you haven't had that experience, it's shocking. And they're running out of food in many places around the world. We don't see it here in the United States. We're not seeing it in Europe. And certainly if you have enough money, uh, you're going to be able to avoid the consequences of that because you don't mind when your, your uh, grocery bill goes up. But for a great portion of the world, food is getting unreasonably expensive, even in the United States, with First Harvest, which is one of the, the main distributors for, uh, you know, for philanthropic help or folks who need assistance with food. Uh, as little as, I think, five years ago, less than uh, one in eight children in the United States were on food assistance, now it's one in five. This is in a very short period of time. That's a frightening statistic. And this is a statistic that is going to get, that's going to increase in terms of its threat to our population in the years to come, to the point where it's going to be where there's not going to be any food or philanthropic help for the people who are starving to death. And we can't let it get to that point. And we can avoid it very easily. But we have to put those steps in place. And it starts with education and training. Chris, do you have anything yes, I, you want to jump in? Yeah, I was just taking all that in. I, I absolutely agree. It starts with education and training. In fact, one of the things we, we've been looking at is finding a whole host of growing grannies, as, they, as we call them, and educating the growing uppers because there seems to be a, a complete generation gap missing of, of knowledge, particularly here. Chris, I agree with you Sorry. completely. I think every child that's being raised right now, our entire education system, should every kid should be learning basic gardening and basic how to raise food and farming. That's a, a crucial element because I think a 21st century home is going to be raising a portion of its own food and nutrition within whether that's an apartment or whether that's in a plat in the backyard. But there's certainly in the United States plenty of land available in order for us to start producing food. And the truth is, when you produce it yourself, you can produce it without all the pesticides, you can manage the nutrients that are going into what you're eating, and you end up with a higher quality product than maybe what you're getting at the supermarket, unless you're lucky enough or wealthy enough to be able to buy organic foods that are raised on farms and from sources that you feel comfortable with and know. But uh, the future is going to be really, it, it, we're defining a future that you're going to have to raise some of your own food. You're going to have to manage your waste. You're going to have to really be conscious of the way you utilize water. And I also think if we're going to save this planet and maintain anywhere near the biodiversity that we're used to and that we've become accustomed to, that we very, very much have to put some effort into supporting that, that, those possibilities for our, uh, for our family members in less and, or more impoverished countries and in less developed areas of the world that do not have access to this level of education. And right now I would tell you that, you know, with, with the, only the smallest portion of our population really understand what's, what's, what has to happen and what needs to be done, probably a fraction of a fraction of a percent. So this type of education that is specific to sustainability, sustainable food, sustainable energy growth and development, and sustainable water management and waste management, as it directly pertains to economic development, is the, is the crucial key for us to be able to make it through the century. And we really need to be moving in that direction with all due dispatch and focus. And so far, that's not happened. Well, and that's what we're trying to do, I guess, with Energon University is that's the focus. It's not about teaching people anything other 
than the skills that they're going to require and the knowledge that they're going to need to make sure that we can ensure that we have a healthy and vibrant future for our children by protecting the environment and by creating economic models that support this uh, resource management and uh, environmental stewardship. So where, where do you think that um, the best place is to start in, in terms of, say, the industrialized world? Well, with the industrialized world, you're talking about a model where you've got a robust and intact infrastructure that's already been developed. So you're talking about a retrofit model, and that retrofit model must be based on consumer integration. Consumerism is the dominant theme in both Western and developed cultures when you go to China or Japan or any place else in the world where you have first world uh, amenities. So essentially what we're trying to do here is create models of explaining people how to be able to run their businesses more efficiently, how to reduce their energy and water use, provide products that allow that to happen, but also educate people as to the types of infrastructure that will be required or modifications to infrastructure on a civil level such that we can get politics or politicians, you know, pushing projects in the right direction and making the right choices. Because you see a lot of wrong choices being made. You know, you see what's going on right now, say, for instance, uh, in Las Vegas with Lake Mead and the fact that the Colorado River water system is being dewatered at about 1% per year. And, and Lake Mead's 150 feet below where it should be. And right now they're panicking in Las Vegas. They're trying right now desperately to dig water uh, the uh, water tunnels that are lower in the water table so that they'll be able to access water because the water's going to fall below where their intake valves are. And the same for the Hoover Dam. All this energy that's being created is being drawn through these intake valves, which are starting to become exposed because the water levels are dropping. So after a while, you say to yourself, well, is Las Vegas ever going to be, is it going to be able to survive this? And we're not sure. Uh, you know, you might have cities like Phoenix and, and Taos and, and all these wonderful cities in Albuquerque in the southwest that might be vacant and people are going to have to leave in the future simply because the resources are not going to be there to provide those basic uh, sustainable needs of water and, of course, the water that's required for agriculture, you know, unless you're shipping everything in, which is, is really not, not possible at this point. So we're going to have to make great investments in the future and really look at huge infrastructure projects to uh, supplant and and supplement what's being lost right now as we use, utilize those resources and as the environment changes. And the environment is changing for whatever reason. I, I always hate to get into the argument as to whether or not climate change, you know, whether or not there's climate change or, you know, who's, who's responsible, whether it's natural or not. Because the truth is this is really doesn't make a difference. We're seeing changes right now that are verified by, by trend lines that are easily understood as to how we're utilizing our resources, how quickly they're diminishing, and what we're going to need in the future to support our population. And that's really the only discussion we should be having. How are we going to plan for the future in order to be able to manage a larger population with a much more austere uh, supply of natural resources so that we're going to be the responsibility of managing those resources for very little waste and highest efficiency are going to be very much required in the future. And that's needs to be taught. We're not, as a culture, globally, we haven't been raised that way. We've been preconditioned to expect that the rain's going to fall. We wait. If the rain doesn't fall, the crop fails, and it's a disaster. But the truth is, it doesn't need to be that way. There are ways to raise food indoors. There are ways to manage water supplies. 
that we've learned over the years. I mean, the Romans had wonderful cisterns, you know, the, the you know, uh, uh, tribes of northern Africa dug their homes into the ground so that they could take the coolness of the ground, help air condition their, their, uh, their domiciles, you know, in, in incredibly harsh and warm environments. There's little things that we can do to adjust that will make a huge difference as we go forward. But we have to know what to do. There has to be a model and there has to be a methodology as to how you do it. Because otherwise, it's always comes down to, well, who's going to pay for it? And the truth is, our economics, our economic growth should pay for it. It should be part of what it is we do as we prosper, rather not a sidebar or something that we have to do differently from economics. It's a bad discussion. And that's always where there's a tremendous amount of disagreement. And I think it's a, rather, a, a, it's a matter of ignorance rather than understanding. If people understood how profitable it is to be efficient, and wonderful technologies are, and, and applications are coming onto the market, they would have a different view of sustainability and of resource management. They'd recognize that you can be much more profitable that way. And that's going to be part of our reprogramming the population for the 21st century. Well, it, it's really change, isn't it? And everybody's, well, some people are always um, nervous about change because it's not what they're used to. Change I mean, most people are nervous about change. I mean, it's, it's change. Yeah, it's the unknown because it's different than what you're comfortable with and what you're familiar with. Um, Bill, I, I'm just getting introduced myself to Energon University, and I'm hearing you speak about, you know, educating people. And we have listeners um, on our program from all over the world, so it's very possible that somebody from across, you know, on a total different part of the planet would be hearing you speak and, you know, be um, spurred and really interested in educating their, themselves, their community. Tell me what's available uh, in terms of education. Would someone reach out to you? Would you offer classes at a university level? Do you go to, uh, like, smaller communities? I mean, tell me how this works if people really do want to start to make a difference. Well, let me how tell you how it starts. Let me tell you how it's going to work, okay? Because we're still in the point. It, it, this is a very complex and far-reaching platform that we're trying to create. And because of that, getting the funding together, we've already got, at this point, probably 150 or more doctorate-level educators and scientists and uh, sustainability visionaries who will be teaching for us. And these are some of the most prominently known people in the world. But in order to be able to put all those courses together so that we have an online platform, we also want on-the-ground platforms so that we can teach people. They can get their hands involved in projects and actually learn the skill sets that they'll require uh, to bring back to their home communities or their home countries to make these changes. But we're still in the stage of getting funded. The idea is, though, that once it is up and running, uh, Energine will probably provide a core curriculum of one to 200 different types of courses that relate to agriculture, aquaculture, growing algae, different types of algae for food uh, and nutrition, uh, algae for energy, uh, everything that has to do with, with renewable energy, whether that are solar modules, solar uh, concentrators, thermal solar, nanosolar technology, uh, production of hydrogen energy, anything that has to do with sustainable development, we're going to be creating a model to teach those basic skills. But one of the key things that we're going to be doing is creating a, a, a guide for every country that we work with in every region of the world so that they understand their specific challenges 
as it relates to what they have in abundance and what they don't have in abundance. Know how to manage this process so instead of it being a process of, of constant need for subsidy and philanthropy, it's rather a self-sustaining model that helps them build their economy in a way where they're protecting their environment and providing pathways out of poverty for their population. Because ultimately what you have to do, what you're required to do and what you should be trying to do is lift the standard of living for the people in the areas that you're going into. And really that's what Energon is about. This is about people working together to extend the, the benefits of education and opportunity to every human being on the planet to increase overall human productivity. And at the same time, educating people as to uh, smarter uh, methods of, of consumption. Because the issue is not, you know, if you're, you're talking about a capitalist model, it's always about production, produce more, higher profits. But production right. is only one half of the equation here. The real issue that we have is, is that we're consumers. The majority of the world, and I'm talking about 99% of the planet, consumes far more than it produces. So we have to change that, that equation by really educating our, our population as to reduce their need for consuming outside resources by making them more independent, give them the ability to manage their own water, their own food, create their own energy on site. This is what the 21st century and beyond is going to look like if we're to be successful. Homes will create most of their own energy. They will create a large portion of their food, manage much of their water, and utilize the waste that they create for something that's valuable, for something that has uh, a value, whether it's as an industrial feed source, a fertilizer, or, or for power and energy. But there's no such thing as waste. There's no such thing as garbage, I should say. There's just that which we can utilize in another manner for a higher purpose. And right. we just need to be smarter. That's, and that's, that's all there is to it, but it's really, there's a lot to it. So when these folks, we get, we get folks from all over the world that say we'd like to get involved with Energon University, we'd like to take courses, and I say to them, well, we have to have commitments from areas, from governments, from universities that we can work with so that we can start integrating a curriculum in, in the, into those areas. We need partners. This is not something that Energon is giving as a gift to the world. This is something that Energon is trying to help organize. Energon University is taking assets that are already out there, people who are already doing this wonderful training and this wonderful education and giving them a platform by which they can provide and, uh, this knowledge and education to a much, much wider audience. And the thing is, with what, the way we're going to be designed, this is not going to be something that's going to cost people anything. I mean, if people have money, there may be some cost involved with it, but it'll be inexpensive. But for most of the world, this is going to be given away free. This is not being done for profit. In fact, five, we're a 5013C, or we will be uh, officially a 5013C in a little while once the government gets around to uh, giving us our papers. But uh, this is not a for-profit concept. This is, we're trying to help our, our human family out there, and that's the purpose Hi. of Energon University. Bill, what a wonderful project to be involved with and to think of how many people you're going to be helping throughout the world. It's absolutely incredible. Thank you so much for joining us today and we really look forward to our next interview in about a week's time. Thank you, listeners. You can hear us more at www.growtrends.com or on www.cravingtalkradio.com. Of course, 
we're also on iTunes now as Growing Trend. We look forward to you joining us again very shortly for the next interview with Bill Szyzynski of Energyme University.